Our scripture passage this morning comes from Psalm 16. Uh, Please follow along with me uh, as I read. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Um, You know, Easter is the day when we focus on the resurrection and its meaning in the life of a Christian. Uh, But there really aren't many more topics that will get you the side eye from the world more quickly than to assert that you're the kind of person who is going to build your life on the idea that a man some 2,000 years ago was publicly executed but came back from the dead three days later. Um, No Christian needs to act like that assertion is easy to swallow for people. And so often preacher types like myself will spend Easter sermons in attempts to offer proofs for a Christian's belief in the resurrection. I've done that from this pulpit many times. And for some people, maybe that's compelling. But it occurs to me that there really are other kinds of proof, aren't there? Sometimes we can be convinced of something only when we've tasted and seen that it's true. What do I mean by that? Well, think about the last time you doubted that you had a friend of yours who could cook. They invited you over for a meal and you took a bite and suddenly you came to embrace the truth. Indeed, your friend can cook, (laughs) or perhaps they can't cook. This, of course, is where we got the phrase, the proof in the pudding is in the tasting. That phrase originated as a reference to the fact that it's difficult to judge if the pudding was properly cooked until it's actually being eaten. Okay, so with that in mind, consider the very first sermon that the Apostle Paul preaches after Jesus' ascension at the day of Pentecost. You can find it there in Acts chapter 2. But in verse 27, Peter quotes verse 10 of our passage this morning in the Psalms, which says this, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter's logic in the following verses is simple. King David did, in fact, die. So how can he claim that he wouldn't see corruption? With his death, he decidedly did see corruption. He's no longer with us. So, Peter reasons, it means that David must have been talking about the Messiah that was yet to come. Great David's greater son, Jesus, who in fact did die, but he didn't stay that way. So in verses 30 and 31, he says, Being therefore a prophet, King David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. It's really powerful because he's saying that King David at least had some sense that there must be life beyond the grave if God's promises about his descendants were going to come true. Okay, 
That's Peter's logical argument. In fact, Peter goes on, though, to quote in the very next verse of Psalm 16, verse 11, that says, You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Do you see, though, how this, though, is a different line of appeal? In the first point, he's saying, look, it's only logical that David had foreseen the resurrection. But you know what? There's more. David also understood that fullness of joy was only possible if God could do something about death. And that is why I want to talk about Psalm 16 this morning. Because this prayer of David is one of the, one of the best examples of a peculiar feature in lots of David's poetry, and it's simply this. David believes that he can have an experience with God, an experience that is so tangible and so real to him that it actually registers genuine pleasure for him inside of him, in his inner man, his soul, wherever you want to think about it. That is, David derives actual pleasure from his contemplation of and his walking with God. Hmm. And all I want to suggest to you this morning is that it might be that someone's grappling with the truthfulness of the resurrection is going to be more quickly resolved by an experience of this pleasure that God's people derive from him more than they would by a drawn-out treatise on the historicity of the resurrection. So I want to look at the pleasures that David is talking about under three headings. The experience of pleasure, the location of pleasure, and then the fulfillment of that pleasure. Look at the first one. If you start with the second half of verse 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You understand, this is not the only place David talks about this. Over and over again, he's talking about the Psalms, how great it is to, quote, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, like he says in Psalm 27, or the joy of, quote, beholding God's face and being, quote, satisfied with his likeness, like he says in Psalm 17. David can't get enough of God's unfailing love, this hesed that we've talked about, going away the most often repeated attribute of God in the Psalms, so much so that he dwells on it day and night. I think what David is instructing us is what it means and what it feels like to take pleasure in God. But before we understand that, we really have to do some work on how much human beings depend on pleasure in order just to go about their daily motivation. This is my premise. Go with me here for a second. We go to find things that are beautiful when we most need to calm ourselves down. That's it. When life is pressing in on us, we're anxious, we're panicked, we're nervous, maybe we're churning on the inside about things. We know instinctively that the only thing that brings us down off the ledge is beauty. Think about this. You've had another hard day on the job, by which I mean you were humiliated again by your superiors or maybe your coworkers, or maybe perhaps you're humiliated by that voice inside your head that's constantly condemning you. You're discouraged. Why is it your instinct to put on some music on the way home? Why is it that on your way home you begin to daydream about a vacation in the mountains where you can just sort of curl up and read a good book? Why is it that you light a candle and draw a hot bath after the kids go down? 
Well, we do those things because there is an essential power in beauty. We go on a walk and see the sunset, and strangely, we just feel a little better after we see it. And it's because human beings are the sort of animal that fixates on and comforts ourselves with the things that bring us pleasure. Why? So, so we can cope with life. All human beings, we need to calm ourselves. We need to satisfy ourselves. And when we see something beautiful, it brings us pleasure. And that pleasure calms us. It gets rid, at least for a moment, the restlessness. I think this is why David is talking like he does. There's a very interesting little quirk of the Hebrew there in verse 11 that you need to know about that we have translated in your presence there is fullness of joy. If you read the Hebrew literally there, it would translate this way. In your face is joy, joy. It's a literary technique. You've heard me say this before to show emphasis or intensity. You just doubled the word that you're talking about. What David means is, is there is joy upon joy in God's presence. The palate of my heart, David is saying, is finally satiated only when I'm in the presence of God. All of my other needs for beauty are met when I have found God and I take delight in him. Do you see what David's doing? David is calming himself. He's regulating his emotions and his anxiety He's getting rid of restlessness. How? By rolling over in his imagination the beauty of the presence of God. And since David talked about it, Christians who follow this same God have been doing the exact same thing. We've got tons of examples of people throughout history who know exactly what David's talking about. The great French philosopher Blaise Pascal and mathematician when he died, some of his family were collecting his belongings and they found his favorite sport coat, his coat. But they discovered, sewed into the interior lining of his coat, a page from his own diary. This is what the page read. In the year 1654, Monday, the 23rd of November, from about half past 10 in the evening till half an hour past midnight, Fire, written in capital letters on one line. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and the learned. Certainty, joy, certainty, emotion, sight, joy, 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 tears of joy. My God, will you leave me? Let me not be separated from you. Now, before I move on to the next point, pause there for a moment and let's at least admit that those kinds of religious experiences are super rare, I'm sure. And my guess is that for the majority of us in this room, we look at descriptions like Pascal's from the other side of what looks to be an impenetrable glass. The question is, though, why is that? Why is Pascal acting that way? What possibly could he have seen or known or experienced that would have elicited that kind of intensity from him? And my guess is, if you're anything like me, you usually start to feel a little less Christian when we hear things like this. Oh, uh, okay. I get it. It's been a while since I've been at church. I'm here on Easter. I know I'm not praying enough. I'm not yielded enough. I'm not holy enough in order for me to have those kinds of interactions with God. I get it. 
That's actually not where I'm going this morning at all. I think actually our most appropriate response to hearing David and some of Jesus' followers talk this way should be, what are you talking about? What pleasure? How did you find that? And exactly what did you find? Well, that brings me to my next point, which is not just the experience of pleasure, but the location of pleasure. You may have noticed another translation quirk from the Hebrew. Again, it says, in your presence is fullness of joy. It's very interesting. There is no Hebrew word for the word presence. Nowhere will you find that in the Hebrew language. Again, if you translate it literally, it says, in your face is fullness of joy. You cannot read the Psalms without getting the deep impression that David is fixated on God's face, seeing it, seeking it, delighting in it. The question is, what could he possibly mean? Well, I think we know this intuitively because the face, if you think about it, is nothing more than the relational gate of a person. Right now you are facing me. I'm facing you. That's how you know we're communicating. There presumably is meaning being transferred. But imagine you pull me aside after the service is over to talk privately. Well, that's another level of communication, isn't it? It's deeper. It's more intimate. You can see my expressions better. Maybe you can read my nonverbals more clearly. So when David says, I want to see the face of God, what he's saying is, is I want more. I know God exists. I can even believe that God is everywhere. But David says, I want more. I want into the relational gate of God. He wants God to regard him. He wants God to connect with him. If you think about it, if I can get with someone face to face, I am relationally in with them. I'm on the inside. I can get to know them. I can be known by them. That still doesn't answer the question is, well, okay then, where do I find God's face? Well, as it turns out, the Bible teaches us there are at least two places. We see them in God's nonverbals, and we see them in his word. Let me take his nonverbals first. Tim Keller reminded me of a wonderful place in a sermon that C.S. Lewis did called The Weight of Glory. Preachers love to quote from this, but this was a quote that I hadn't heard quoted from in a while from that sermon. It goes like this. Lewis says, The energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the world's are what we now call physical pleasures. Now that is a packed quote. What does it mean? Well, Lewis means when he says God's creative rapture, he's referring to these places in Scripture that describe how God felt when he was creating the world. And what we find in those places is that God was almost giddy. He was delighted by seeing what he was doing when he looked at the magnificence of the created order. There was joy that came out of God in his creating. You get this in places like um, Proverbs 8, or better yet, in Genesis chapter 1. Why is he always saying, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good? It shows that God had, he was full of creative joy as God was making. Just like an artist stands over a fresh canvas, or a musician finds just the right chord to fit in that song. Ah, but this is where it gets interesting. <laughs> Because Lewis says that some of that energy that God dispensed in creation while he was making the world got into the created world. So that when you and I experience those energies, we call it 
pleasure. Man, I love this thought. Um, you know, in the month before we took this job five years ago, I took my family on a California trip to go tour some places in California. And we ended up at a wonderful little city called Carmel, Carmel by the Sea, just outside of Monterey. And we were there one afternoon late. And as we made our way down the avenue, if you know anything about Carmel, if you've ever been, as you go out towards the city, it all collects down there at the beach at the end. And as we came down there, we watched the sunset form. And I can tell you that in this particular day, over the rocks, over the Pacific, the sky lit up with a color of red and pink that I have never seen before. Literally the whole town, like, like almost the whole beach practically, was just layered in this rose red hue. But here's what was interesting. People just started showing up. As, as my family and I sort of walked up the beach, you looked up the hill back up towards the town and you realized people were just pouring out so they could stand and watch it. They just wanted to stand and, and stare at it. And the funny thing was, is I don't think it was what the sunset was doing for them. It's that the sunset was its own joy. This overwhelming beauty, beauty, you just had to stand and you had to watch it. So you see what Lewis is saying. He's saying God's creative energy was implanted in that sunset at the creation so that you and I might get a sample, a drop as it were, of the beauty of the joy of being in his presence. When you and I stand before things and we see them as beautiful in themselves and they are legitimate things, whatsoever things are pure and holy and good and right, Paul says, we begin to see in those pleasures the pleasure that God takes in us. For some of you, it happens with certain music. You know what I'm talking about? It's that thing that you play over and over again. Put that on again. And your spouse is like, again? You want to listen to it. You want to go back to it over and over again. Others of you, it's that favorite place in a piece of literature. You've read that book 25 times, but you'll do it again. If you're like me, it's movies. The movies that show up that have that place, that scene that just absolutely breaks your heart every single time. Those are the drops. The beauty that God in his nonverbal cues are dropping on us to say, this is a little bit. The streams on earth I've tasted, the hymn writer said, more deep I'll drink above. Because there to an ocean fullness his mercy doth expand and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. That's the nonverbal cues that God gives us. But you know what's interesting? Nonverbal communication is not the best, is it? In other words, it's one thing to infer someone's words by the look on their face. It's another thing to get it straightforward. If I look at my wife when she walks in a room and maybe she smiles and her face lights up and she sees me, that's encouraging. But it's a whole different game when she walks over, hugs me and says, I love you. The question then becomes, is there verbal communication with the face of God? <laughs> there sure is. Because this is exactly what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 4, when he's talking about the light of the gospel coming to those who don't believe it. And his word choice is really telling. Listen to verse 6. Paul says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. What does that mean? Something has shown in our hearts. Light has come out. It's become beautiful. When was that, Paul? 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The face. There it is again. All of these things, they're pointing to the glory of God. Where do we find that glory? Only in the face of Jesus. Jesus is God's verbal communication of beauty and pleasure. Is that why they call him the word? Look, don't miss this. Paul is saying that if you want to see what David saw, actually, no, much more than that. If you want to see more than what David saw when it comes to beauty, you will only find it ultimately in the relational gate of Jesus. Only in his face can you see what will truly blow you away and then bring you in close and comfort your restlessness with sheer beauty. Because only there can it be unveiled. An experience of pleasure, a location of pleasure, finally the fulfillment of pleasure. Look, if Jesus is the terminal point of King David's quest for beauty and pleasure, then how exactly does he do that? How do we get hold of it? Again, Lewis's essay is going to be helpful here because you focus on that last phrase of the psalm. It's my favorite. At your right hand, at your nearness, are pleasures forevermore. Did you catch that? There's two aspects to the beauty of God's presence. Number one is pleasure, and number two, they never go away. Take that first part. Back to Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. There's actually another place where Lewis starts to contemplate this, this, this glory that awaits God's people when they see him. And he says, you know, glory has multiple senses when we talk about it in English. But one of the most obvious things that we refer to as glorious are things that are famous, right? This is the reason why when we see someone who is famous and well-known, we gawk at them. We gawk at movie stars and kings and princesses. When we moved here in the summer of 1999, I was walking through square books and lo and behold, who was looking at books across the way, but Bonnie Raitt. I was like, why is Bonnie Raitt in Oxford, Mississippi? But there she was. I gawked. And if you don't know who Bonnie Raitt is, I pity you. <laughs> but is that what God is talking about when he says that that's what awaits us is this eternal weight of glory? Are we talking about us being made famous and that's the glory he wants to give us? Mm, not exactly. Because we're not talking about fame and glory that other fellow human beings give us. No, 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 no. Lewis is saying the real fame that God gives us is a fame with God. That is, what we experience in the face of Jesus is an approval by God. And that approval is not mere toleration. It is literally an appreciation. The glory that is revealed in the face of Jesus is that he, because of what he has done on the cross, does not tolerate us, but regards us, appreciates us, loves us. And if you don't have that, it, it, there's nothing to stop you from going to the vanity route. Lewis actually understood this. He said, you know, I always thought that was a little bit vain. Oh, God really appreciates me. Let me break my arm by patting myself on the back, right? But he said, you know, that's not right. He said, because I can remember at now that as an old man that there actually was nothing more precious to a child than to know and I mean really know that he had the approval of his father. And there was this flash moment where he thought to himself, my father loves me. He actually likes me also, <laughs> which is hard to believe. Listen to this quote. He says, but I thought I could detect at a moment, a very, very short moment before this happened, the vanity, 
during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased him whom she was created to please. Did you catch that? I mean, that moment before your pride took over and you started admiring yourself for the fact that you had God's favor, which is hilarious. There was a pure moment where you stood completely awash in your father's praise of you, that he loved you, that he really loved you. It's exactly the reason why I am shattered at that same moment in Spielberg's hook when Peter Pan looks at his son and says, you were my happy thought. You were the happy thought that gave me flight. And I have found that there is nothing more difficult for us to believe, but it's there. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. You see his rationale. There was joy that was set before Jesus that got him to endure the cross, enduring the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was that joy? What was the joy that pushed Jesus to the cross? You ready for this? It was you. Jesus had everything before he went to the cross, except for you. You were the joy set before him. And again, that beauty, that beauty of the joy, the pure joy of knowing that my father approves of me in Christ. There's nothing harder to get into your soul than that. Because if it's true, you know that there's no way you can continue to live your life the way you did before. Hey, but have no fear. (laughs) Because not only is this pleasure of being delighted in something beautiful, it's also not going to go away. You'll have plenty of time to contemplate it. Why? Because these are pleasures forevermore. I can hear some of you saying, well, maybe in this life I get it. But you know, my impending death, that threatens to undo everything. My impending death threatens to spoil joy. You know what? I totally agree with you. Death is the great spoiler of every earthly joy. Ah, but now do you see why Peter chose this psalm as his text for his first sermon after Jesus' resurrection? You see why? Because he knows that if Jesus rose from the dead, it means that the delight that God takes in his creatures whom he has saved will pulsate through us forever, forever, until we are fully consumed into the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of God's love in Christ for his people. Look, my point is simply this. Your life is driven by your beauties. The pleasures you seek to make sense of your life is why you're here. And I could stand up here this morning and make a compelling case, you know, that Jesus actually did in real space-time history rise from the dead, and here's the historical proofs, and they are legion because he did. Or, and this is what we wanted to talk about this morning, I could stand up here and say to you from Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
Blessed is the man, blessed is the woman who takes refuge in him. Don't you see? That's the invitation. The invitation of the resurrection is like, we'll work through your intellectual questions. We'll get to that, but hey, come in. My advice to you this morning is to go find Jesus. Go find Jesus in the pages of Scripture. Search through until you have hunted him down. Go gather with some friends and talk about it in what we call a small group and discuss it until you've found it. Go get on your knees in prayer, not because it's a good thing to pray and I'm supposed to read my Bible and be a good Christian, but because when I pray, I need to see him and I need to see his smile because if that was the case, we would never stop. And the promise that he makes is, is he's got something waiting for you that will utterly transform you. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I've got things inside me that don't believe that because I'm stubborn. I've got distractions all around. But yet that doesn't change the fact that you're revealing yourself. You're revealing yourself in the sunshine outside right now. But in the face of Jesus, his resurrected power, we long to see something more. We want to taste and see. So Father, as we sing this song, as we belt out in Christ alone, my hope is found. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us in great resurrection power. Not so that miracles can happen. Not so that fancy tricks. Not so we can have a, an emotional mountaintop. But because we want to see you. And if we see you, that would be enough. Would you do that for us this morning? Or we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.